evening. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Tonight we are continuing our series in Luke. So if you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand to honor the reading of God's most holy word in Luke chapter 6. We will pick up in verse 17 and we will go through verse 31. Hear God's word. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came near to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich! For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word, and may he grant us all the grace to trust and obey him. Please be seated. Well, so far in Luke's gospel, we have seen that he was writing to Theophilus, a God lover. Luke says that he wrote to Theophilus to give an orderly account of the life of Jesus so that this God-lover and all subsequent God-lovers would be certain about the person and work of the Christ. In the first two chapters, we saw how God began to fulfill His covenant promises by acting in a very old, but a very familiar way. In a distant Abrahamic echo, if you will, God answered the prayer of an old man. And he did so by giving him and his elderly, barren wife the gift of a child. But it wasn't to be just any child. This child, whose name would be John, would come in the spirit of Elijah, and he would prepare God's people for the coming of the Lord. And then we heard how God, picking up another thread from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, 
And he wove that thread into this story, promising that a virgin would be with child. This child would be called the Son of the Most High, and he would reign from the throne of his father David over the house of Jacob forever. This child's name would be Jesus, and Jesus would have an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom with no end. And then Luke goes on, and in the songs of virgins and priests and prophets and angels, Luke ensures that God's people would recognize this Jesus as the one that Abraham and Adam and Moses and Abraham and David and all the God lovers had been waiting for. Then we see in chapters 2 and 3, Luke explaining how Jesus covenantally united himself to God's people in the Jordan and then takes with him into the wilderness their sin where he would do what God's people had failed time and time again to do. Jesus resisted Satan. He defeated Satan and he resisted his own temptation. And then we see Jesus beginning his ministry by declaring a theme that has underlies Luke's gospel throughout the whole thing. Jesus reads from Isaiah chapter 61, and he says that he is the fulfillment of that great prophecy. Jesus claims to be the anointed one sent by God to usher in the great jubilee. And in this great jubilee, Jesus would proclaim good news for the poor. He would proclaim liberty to the captives and the oppressed and the recovery of sight for the blind. Once Jesus has proclaimed this year of Jubilee, he goes on to give proof that his message is true by freeing people held prisoner by evil powers. He provides poor fishermen with an abundance of fish and he makes the dirty clean and he makes the lame to walk. All of that is just a snippet of what we've covered so far up until today, up until Luke chapter 6. Those of you that have been here week after week, uh, we hope that each time you have walked away rejoicing at the person and work of Jesus. Those of us who have seen Jesus, who rejoice at what he came to do and who long for him to return again, probably tend to wonder who wouldn't want someone coming with this kind of message. Who wouldn't want somebody coming and doing the kinds of things that Jesus was doing? I mean, don't we all yearn for the brokenness that we see all around us to be made right? Don't we grieve when we see people in the bondage of addiction and the ripple effect that has on families? Most of us, I'm sure, have had friends and family members ravaged by sickness and disease and eventually death. We've seen generational poverty and too big of a gap between the haves and the have-nots. We've all been run ragged by the demands to produce and to be liked and to live up to the expectations that always seem just out of reach. All people everywhere have felt These blows since that tragic day in the garden, that day when man decided that autonomy was better than dependence. 
So you would think then that when Jesus came, declaring that he was sent by God to put an end to all the sadness and to bring order back from the brink of chaos, that everyone would leap for joy. But you know as well as I do that not everyone is reasonable. I mean, here was a man who was healing all kinds of diseases, all kinds of infirmities. He was interpreting the law in such a way that made it a delight rather than a burden. And as in verse 19 of Luke 6 says, Jesus wasn't even hoarding all of his power. He was giving it away to those who came to him. And yet, not everyone is leaping for joy at the good news of Jesus then. And not everyone leaps for joy at the good news of Jesus now. Some people rage at the thought of Jesus being Lord over them. Some of you have probably shared the gospel with someone who has told you to your face that they would rather spend eternity in hell than to submit their lives to Jesus. And yet, the contrast between those two people, the contrast between those who rage and recoil at Jesus and those who rejoice at Jesus isn't always that obvious. There's this sort of in-between group, if you will, and this group is really hard to reach. These people are difficult to reach because they have just enough law to clean up the really dirty parts of their lives. And then they've got just enough pride to go through the right motions and sing the right songs and pray the right prayers, all while resisting the Holy Spirit. This third group goes about their life just comfortable enough in their unbelief that they refuse to allow the gospel of grace to turn them upside down and inside out. Undoubtedly, all three groups of these people are being addressed here in Luke 6. Those who rage and recoil, those who rejoice, and those who neither rage nor rejoice. In the first 11 verses, Jesus' words and works make the first group of people recoil with rage. Strangely enough, though, it isn't the irreligious outsiders that recoil and rage at Jesus, but it's the religious folk, the insiders. They recoil because Jesus violates their subjective code of conduct. They're angry with Jesus because he and his followers are doing a work of necessity and gleaning just enough grain to eat on the Sabbath. And so the religious elites come and they question Jesus on his Sabbath practices and his responses cause them to rage with anger. Jesus tells them that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Now this term perhaps is lost on irreligious outsiders, but it is loaded with meaning to those who knew what an outrageous claim this was. After all, it was God was the one who built a day of rest into the very fabric of his creation. Genesis 2 said, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It was God who called his people to remember the Sabbath in his giving of the law at Sinai. 
And it was God who on the mountain told Moses to tell his people that above all, they are to keep his Sabbaths. For that would be a sign throughout all generations so that his people would know that the Lord is the one who sanctifies his people. So when Jesus comes along claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, he's claiming to be God, very God. And like God, on the Sabbath, Jesus does work. Not by breaking the fourth commandment, but by keeping it. Jesus fulfills a vital element of Sabbath keeping by doing acts of necessity in providing his daily bread for his followers. And he keeps the Sabbath by doing an act of mercy, by healing a man with a withered hand. One popular opinion among Christian circles these days is that the Pharisees had too high a view of God's law. But Jesus comes in and reveals their heart and the reality that they actually had too low a view of his law. The religious leaders had taken one of God's good laws and they had had their way with it by turning it into a burden and a boundary marker. So when Jesus comes in and he begins claiming authority over them and breaking down their walls, they fume at the thought of losing their power and they conspire as to how they can get rid of Jesus. It's obvious these first first guys fall into the group that rages and recoils at the idea of Jesus being Lord over them. And so we see here them rejecting Jesus. And in so doing, they reject the Lord of the Sabbath. Now what might be lost to some of us was by no means lost on Jesus. Israel's leaders had just rejected him. And so he withdraws and he goes up onto a mountain to pray. Unlike Moses in our scripture reading, though, you see, Jesus doesn't go alone. The Lord of the Sabbath had been rejected by Israel, and now he brings new followers up the mountain with him. And there he chooses when he names apostles. Jesus has just pushed a symbolic reset button by calling the 12 apostles instead of the 12 tribes to follow him on his way to the promised land. And then Jesus and the 12 come down from the mountain together and they stood on a level place. Luke's Mention here of topography and geography is not an accident. Jesus comes down the mountain to stand on a level place to reveal his will to all kinds of people, fulfilling John the Baptist's prophecy in Luke 3 of Isaiah 40. John the Baptist says, every valley shall be filled And every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Jesus didn't just meet with his inner circle up on a mountain away from the lowly. Nor did he leave them and abandon them in the crowds in the valley. No, Jesus comes to a level place. Place 
And he reveals the glory and salvation of God, not just to Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And then he speaks to them. He speaks to them in very covenantal language. You see it there, the language of blessings and curses. Jesus addresses the two other groups of people we talked about earlier, the people who rejoice and those who neither recoil nor rejoice. We are told that Jesus lifts his eyes upon his disciples. He speaks and he comforts one group of people by speaking tender blessings over them. And in the very next breath, he discomforts another group of people by proclaiming covenant curses for them if they continue in their gospel hard-heartedness. As this is patterned, Jesus shocks the audience which group he says is blessed and in which group he says is cursed. While you may not be able to tell Jesus' political persuasion that he would have had today, You can certainly tell which political parties he wouldn't have been a part of. Jesus says, the ones who are blessed are the poor. The ones who are blessed are the hungry. The ones who are blessed are the sorrowful. The ones who are blessed are the despised and the rejected. This is shocking to the hearers because the prosperity gospel isn't just a modern phenomenon. The oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. And there we are introduced to a blameless and upright man. You know it, but the long story short is this blameless, upright man loses almost everything. He loses his possessions. He loses his health. He loses his friends. And he loses his family all in the first two chapters. The rest of the book is filled with Job's so-called friends trying to convince him that he's undergoing these hardships because of some hidden sin. If God were pleased with Job, so their reasoning went, none of these bad things would be happening. But because Job's life is falling apart, because he's poor, because he's hungry and weeping and despised by even his own wife, God must be angry with him. Job's frustrated with his friend's wrong assessment of the situation. And he insists that there is no hidden sin bringing this upon him. But as the story goes on, we actually learn that Job also suffers from the same theology of suffering that his friends had. Job spends spends three chapters towards the end of the book, over 1,500 words attempting to justify himself before God. This faulty idea that if you're healthy, wealthy, and wise, that means God is pleased with you, had seeped into even Job's thinking. This type of thinking has always tempted God's people to despair and to doubt their standing with Him. When Jesus' disciples saw a man born blind, they asked Him, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? 
Even Jesus' disciples had a hard time not equating God's heavenly disposition toward his people with their worldly circumstances. The idea that if things are going bad, God is unhappy with you, and if things are going well, God is happy with you, is an overarching theme, not in Christianity, but in almost all the world's religions. Brothers and sisters, do we not struggle with this same faulty theology? Everywhere we look, this appears to be the economy of how our world works. And so we project that same approach back onto God. When you find out that you didn't get that promotion. Or maybe even worse, you got laid off. You wonder, is God mad at me? Did I not work hard enough to get his blessing? When there's more month left than there is money and you've run out of creative ways to eat beans do you wonder if God is paying attention when someone you love gets a dreaded diagnosis when you're awake all hours of the night when you realize the loneliest place in the world is lying next to a spouse who doesn't love you When you have no more tears. In those times when the only emotions you are capable of feeling are anxiety and fear and darkness and depression. Do you feel like God is cursing you? What's potentially worse? Do you think you're blessed because you've done well? But because someone else lives out of a shopping cart or wears trash bags for long johns, God is cursing them. Kids, do you think God loves you more when you honor your mom and dad? Do you think that he loves you and he smiles at you, but only when you obey? I confess I do at times. More times than I would like to admit. But Jesus doesn't buy into the hype of the world. He doesn't operate in terms of tit for tat or quid pro quo. He doesn't deny that the pain and the hunger and the fear and the loneliness are real. Instead, what he does is he calls his people to see things through new eyes. Through eyes that only God can open. He brings good news to the poor. The kingdom of God belongs to you. To those who know the pangs of hunger, you will be satisfied one day. He comforts the brokenhearted and the soul crushed. He promises to bring laughter when he himself wipes away every tear from your bloodshot eyes. To those who have left everything to follow him. And have been left by everyone because of your devotion to him. He tells you to rejoice. Your reward isn't to be found in the fleeting joys of man-centered approval. Rather, your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has come to usher in jubilee. And the year of the Lord's favor is upon you because he has come. 
He's come to turn the world's expectations upside down and inside out with the gospel of grace. Not first and foremost by barking imperatives, but by proclaiming the indicatives of a new reality. In God's economy, not everything is as it seems. The kingdom belongs to the poor. Ultimate satisfaction is for the hungry. Joy is for those who mourn. And a great reward awaits those who are hated and excluded from the world's economy on account of this Jesus. Jesus doesn't say you won't suffer if you just follow him and play nice. No. He implies that suffering awaits all who follow him. How in the world does this guy get anybody to sign up for this? Well, he does so by pointing us outside of our temporal circumstances to the eternal promises of God. He explains to them that the suffering they really are experiencing now isn't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. But he doesn't just explain their suffering to them. We'll see in a bit. He actually enters into suffering on their behalf. How opposite is all of this from the message that inculcates us day in and day out? We live in a world where you make friends with those who can bring you further up and further into the good life. And so if you want to be an insider, you better know where your bread is buttered and you better know how to make the right people happy. Evermore, we live in a world where the now is all that exists and the self is at the center of the universe. On one side of the aisle, we hear that God only helps those who help themselves. So do your fair share if you want to belong. And on the other side, we hear that your body parts don't even get to have a say in what sex you are. That's how autonomous and in the moment we are. Beloved, if we're not careful, we might be tempted to look on both sides of the aisle at those people out there and declare that those sinners need to get with the program. That's a very real temptation, especially if you're not poor, especially if you're not hungry, if you're not mourning, if you're not late, lonely and you're not hated. So you don't rage and recoil at Jesus. You followed him after all. But that, real, that very real temptation, the temptation to point to those sinners out there and how they are just reaping what they sow. If we indulge in for that type of thinking for long, then we can move out of the group who rejoices at Jesus and is comforted by his blessings and into the group that neither recoils nor rejoices and therefore falls under his covenant curses. Remember, he's lifted his eyes upon people who were following him. People who had gathered to hear him. It's his disciples that he is directing his woes toward. These people blend in to the crowd and Jesus knows they're there. So he pronounces these curses to wake them up. If you're here this morning and you find yourself not really raging and recoiling at Jesus, 
but not poor and hungry and weeping and an outcast because of him, then be warned. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Jesus continues to turn the world upside down with his woes. Woe to you who are rich, you who are in positions of power and privilege. You have received your reward. Woe to you who are full and satisfied now, for you will hunger. Woe to you who laugh and who are carefree now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you and no one looks down on you for your commitment to Jesus. Be warned if any of these describe you. Worldly wise man would have you believe that you need just a little more of a nest egg. You need just a few more drops in your rainy day fund. You know, just in case. You need to put in all those extra hours at night or on the Lord's day. You need that house and you need it all to yourself. You need that next unique meal, that next strong drink. You need that next vacation, that next episode, that next escape. You need the board's approval. You need your boss to pat you on the back and your family to agree with you. You need your friends to play with you and include you in their games. Now, you may not think you need these things, but when you step back, you look at your life and sometimes you live as though you do. You believe living this way is okay because you have just enough good theology to know that there is nothing wrong with saving money. You know that you were created to work and you were created to work well. You know that the Father loves to give good things to His children and that there's nothing innately wrong with a nice house or a cool car or watching television. But beloved, that's what makes them so dangerous. Feasts, family, those are good things. Joy and humor are good things that reflect God's image to a watching world. One qualification of a godly leader is to be well thought of by outsiders. So if you know that God's word tells us that there is in fact a time and place for these things, why would Jesus pronounce covenant curses over his followers? He pronounces covenant curses for the same reason he pronounces covenant blessings. He loves you too much not to. If you're poor and if you're hungry, if you're grief stricken and you're lonely, You need to be reminded that God loves you and He will not forsake you even when it feels that way. He will make all things new for you. If you're rich and you're fat and you're lighthearted and you're popular, you need to be reminded that this world can lull you to sleep and it can dull your senses. The here, the now, is just a blink of an eye. Jesus loves his disciples enough to comfort the wounded and to wound the comfortable. 
This world is not all there is. So don't fall too deeply in despair. And this world is not all there is. So don't fall too deeply in love with it. A wise prayer would be, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. As we wrap up Luke 6, perhaps you're like me, and there's times that you wonder, which group am I in? I'm pretty sure that I don't rage or recoil at Jesus. I think I rejoice in Him. But I'm nervous that maybe my faith is the kind of faith that neither rejoices nor recoils. There's times when I and perhaps you have been in the midst of a drought and of sorrow and dark despair. And in those times, you felt that Christ is all you've had and He's been enough. And in that you rejoice. And yet, there have been these other times, these times when you found yourself faced with a truth in God's Word or confronted with an idol that needs smashing and you've recoiled at God and you've raged for a season. And then yet there are the in-between times. There are the times when we live the nice, comfortable life in our nice, comfortable homes and life seems to be sort of on autopilot, you know, not, not too high, but not too low. Perhaps it's where we spend most of our time and we think we're rejoicing at God in those times, but maybe you're not sure. Because the thread of your life seems to be a braid or perhaps more realistically, a bird's nest of all three. You ask, am I under the covenant blessings or am I under the covenant curses? As soon as Jesus finishes pronouncing these blessings and curses, he commands to all those who hear, love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is unkind to the, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. James Jesus' brother picks up on the Sermon on the Plain and he says something very similar when dealing with the issue of, uh, with this issue and with the issue of whether or not a disciple is under covenant curses. In the epistle, James writes, where he deals with how the haves relate to the haves nots, James says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who fulfills the royal law according to the Scripture, the law of liberty, he will be blessed. James makes a direct connection between how you respond to the law of liberty, to the law of freedom, to the law of jubilee, if you will, and whether or not you're under the blessings of God. Do you look upon the poor as a drain on society or as image bearers in need of grace and mercy? Do you look upon the hungry beggar as a lazy bum 
or as someone who just needs a bite of food and a cool drink? Are the outcast and the lonely reaping what they sow, or do you give everyone who begs of you? Do you think the grieving just need to be more thankful, or do you enter into their suffering? Do you return evil words and evil deeds when someone mistreats you, or do you honestly pray for them and their well-being? Do you find yourself more generous to those who have something to offer in return? Or do you freely give to others regardless of whether they can repay you? Do you think that your world would be better if everyone just lived like you and worked as hard as you? Or are you willing to serve others no matter what the personal cost? If you found yourself in the second group... Then rejoice because the blessings of God are yours. A good tree produces good fruit. The one who obeys the law of Jubilee, the one who loves their neighbor and gives mercy to the enemy is like one who builds his house on a rock. His house will not be shaken when the flood of judgment comes. But if like 87% of evangelical Christians, you believe that God only helps those who help themselves. If you found yourself in the first group, then you must repent. Or the curses of God are yours. A bad tree produces bad fruit. The one who dishonors the poor man. The one who wields his power and his supposed rights. The one who shows partiality and brings judgment upon the weak. That one will have his house ruined when the flood of judgment comes. If any of that describes you and you feel a bit like a fruit salad because you got chopped up so badly. Then what do you do? Obey Jesus. Come to Him. Come to the One who brings the law of Jubilee. If you found yourself under covenant curses, look to Christ. He turns the outside in and the downside up. Though He was rich and had every right to remain that way, He became poor. Though He feasted on the Word of God and He Himself was the bread from heaven. Jesus hungered in the wilderness and thirsted on the cross. Though out of an abundance of joy, He loved and created all things. He was despised and rejected by men, abandoned by even His closest friends, and He became one from whom men hide their faces. Though He was in perfect communion with God the Father, And God the Spirit, Jesus was forsaken by the Father and gave up His Spirit. In short, the only truly blameless and upright man who ever lived, Jesus came to take your curses so that He could give you His blessings. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And we learned at the beginning of our text today, that power came out from Him and healed all who came to Him. But He didn't just heal those people back then. He promises to heal you. You 
just come to Him. He doesn't do it under the condition that from now on you stop being, you start being kind to poor people and you start helping the hurting. He doesn't demand that you work just as hard as He does if you want to earn His blessings. Jesus offers His blessings freely to the poor, to the hungry, to the broken and to the bruised. But did you hear it? He doesn't only offer it to them. As we're reminded in verse 35, you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. To you. To me. To those who rejoice. To those who just want to. This is the kind of good news that makes the ungrateful grateful, the unmerciful merciful, the unloving love. This good news motivates us to keep the law of freedom, to keep the law of jubilee. This is the good news that turns even a raging man inside out and upside down with rejoicing. So let's do some of that now. Let's do it together.